imagine for a moment a world without art, without dance, opera, literature, poetry. That world would be a very, very dull place. On the show, we have eminent Freemason, author, and host of the Whence Came You Masonic Podcast, one of the oldest Masonic podcasts on the internet, Robert Johnson. Robert, thanks for joining me on the show today. Wouldn't have missed it. Uh, I know we had a couple of scheduling conflicts in the past, uh, but, you know, things happen, and happy we can make this happen. Oh, yeah, me too. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, as far as you, you're a busy guy, so you just have... Well, you have released two books the past year, as well as keeping on your uh, podcasting schedule. You also have do a lot of lecturing with uh, different Masonic lodges and Grand Lodges around the country. Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't know. I kind of everybody seems to say, "Well, you you do a lot," and I kind of say, "Well, it's it's mostly just me neglecting like real world duty." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's always a trade-off there, but uh, right. but I don't, know, I don't know. At the end of the day, you just got to do what you're passionate about, right? That's it. Uh, you, everybody always says, you know, do what you love. You ever work a day in your life, but I mean, it's kind of hard to think about doing what you love today because you got to pay the bills, and usually the things that make people happy are are creative and inspiring and and talking and connecting and there's not a lot of money to be made in that unless you're you know entertaining or you know it's just really difficult i know there was a video that talked about <clears throat> uh motivation in employees and it basically says that the number one motivator for people to do amazing work is autonomy and a chance to master a skill and uh, the chance to actually love what you do, but none of that matters at all if they don't start with a working wage. Uh, so <laughs> it's one of those things where our little passion projects on the side, that's what we love to do. And so we spend some time doing it and sometimes other things take a little hit, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I've always said, at least for myself, it goes back to identity, right? Cause like older generations, um, you know, I think primarily in my grandfather's generation when he was, uh, working, he took a lot of pride in his job. He took a lot of pride in, you know, union membership and he identified more with his vocational role than uh, I think that I could ever imagine myself identifying with. I mean, usually my job is just something that I go and do right i don't see it as really you know being a part of my identity the way he did and i think you know putting more of our identity and putting more of ourselves into our passion projects really is what makes us feel like uh wholer individuals in that sense absolutely i mean the pride that people feel when they leave the military you can't get them to 
take the, the you know the marine sticker off they're a marine for life right or perhaps uh you know a trade union you know local mm-hmm. whatever electricians ibu or whatever the case is i mean there is a real case for uh identity when we get into i don't know like your trades and things but it's hard to find that same identity when we're out there doing things like cubicle work and fulfilling technical tickets and and um, sending out emails that relate to you know how to interpret really terrible sales data into meaningful insights i mean I just kind of mentioned things that I think you and I both are familiar with. And it's like, how do you, how do you find true meaning buy-in and love of that? I mean, look, my job title in real life is a data scientist. That sounds cool, but you know what it means? It means I crunch numbers and I look for like patterns that, that is not fun to me. Like, unless, well, it could be fun if the numbers I was crunching weren't like, you know, a method to be making some board $5 richer. Right. Right. You know, if, if the numbers I was crunching were like, Hey, let's save the world from the next COVID. Hey, that sounds cool to me. Right. Oh, yeah, That's meaningful work. But I don't know. You gotta, you gotta, it's almost like we have to sell ourselves and find a way to not justify what's the word like uh it's like justify but justify the reason to do something right well i mean i don't know man if there was like cubicle work though and i worked technical tickets all day and uh before covid i was in a cubicle doing it and uh, i can attest that you know when you're sitting in a cubicle day after day I just started to feel like a hamster in a wheel, you know, because as soon as you work a ticket, a new one's going to come in and then you're going to have to work that ticket and a new one's going to come in and you don't feel like you're making any progress, right? You feel stagnant. You feel trapped in that same loop over and over again. And uh, yeah, you know, humans are creatures of patterns, right? But, you know, those day-to-day mundane patterns end up making us feel more trapped than anything else in our lives. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, it's this kind of, there is a stagnation, right? Because I know uh, there's never an end to the work. When I first started working in an office after working with my hands for 10 years, you know, I worked on airplanes and and with airplanes. And uh, that was satisfying work in that I would get a task, I would do it, it's done. Like, I'm not going to do that same thing ever again, probably. I mean, there are routine things that you do, you know, right. mechanically inclined for whatever on an aircraft and, and maintenance work. But, but like, there was a finality to the work. And when I went home on Monday night, I know Tuesday, I wasn't going to deal with the same thing I did yesterday, right? But when I come into a cubicle, it's like, okay. And, you know, the cynical IT guy in me, right? I know you feel it too sometimes is like, all right, let's go ahead and answer these same stupid questions I answered yesterday, you know? And and maybe there is minuscule difference from, you know, case to case and, and there are little highlights in our day or whatever, but I still 
is not the way we're supposed to spend our our time. Working from home has been immensely gratifying because when my work is done, um, you know, if I work for an hour and a half, it's kind of a big deal. But on the other side, you know, there are companies out there that also monitor and keystrokes and all that stuff too. So that kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can definitely understand that because, um, I mean, I, I don't know. There's something, um, that, that, that feeling of accomplishment and that you get, I mean, when you're, when you're completing a, ca- a task, I mean, it makes the whole thing worthwhile and with certain jobs and primarily more jobs, you know, within modern society, you don't get that sense of accomplishment because it's just going to be the same thing day in and day out. And I feel like, you know, modern society that just makes most of us just want to search for something more, right? Something more profound, something that's outside of the everyday, something that, um, something that, um, you know, kind of makes us feel connected to humanity and, you know, to, uh, I guess, you know, our collected experience altogether. There's so much truth to what you say, and and actually, we see that day in and day out with with like hobbies, and we see it with. I mean, like you and I right now, uh, I'm gonna... we're we're on a podcast right now, and this kind of podcast is is something that. You put together, we talk, you get some human connection, you get to close it out. It's a final product, it's packaged, it's out there, and people can consume it. Um, and what's interesting is that it gives you this sense of accomplishment. Whereas if you exp- if you look at it in the same way with what we do in our day-to-day job, particularly in an offsetting, it's a big project for work, right? Maybe your boss comes and says, Hey man, like this whole business segment is sucking. So we need to fix that. And you're the man, if you could do it and you knock out a special project. So you get some, some like, you know, woo from that, but, it's not the same kind that you get from packaging some sort of a creative project, right? Like I, that, that's something that in human, like human humans need this uh, thing for creation. And they also need this kind of like almost this ability to live in an, a secondary imaginary place. Also, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's almost like uh, you need that um, that inner universe, right? You know, we all have these uh, these stories we tell ourselves, and um, you know when you when you're able to like you know rewrite your story, right, based on uh, something that strengthens you, uh, it makes it makes the world more palatable, right? It makes you know everything seem a little bit more special, and I think that's what podcasting does in a lot of ways because, you know, even though we are sharing a conversation right now and we're having this connection, there are people who will watch this, you know, maybe a year down the line five years down the line and they can still have a connection with that connection that we had within this moment. Right. So, you know, similar to like a musician, 
right? You know, uh, sharing a moment with a crowd as he's per- performing on stage. You know, you're creating that connection, with, uh, that emotional connection with the audience, similar to a podcast. You know, they're creating that same kind of connection with the conversation that we're having. So, you know, I feel that podcasting, you know, having a platform to express yourself openly um, is a great way to, you know, feel more connected with the world around you and, uh, you know, just helps you kind of write that story. And hobbies in general, I guess, right, kind of help us write that story because when you engage in a hobby, you gain some sort of skill from it. It makes uh, it makes you more confident in yourself because you learn something and then put it to a practical use to accomplish something, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I, I kind of, as, as we talk about this idea and, and talking about the imaginary and things, it, it's like we also do this other stuff, not unlike, uh, I, I, I'm hesitant to use Freemasonry as an example because as a member of the craft, like I definitely see similarities in how somebody would dive into the work of Freemasonry and to become something in an organization that, I mean, is has a lot of pomp and circumstance and people get to a point where they, they want to feel important. Um, and for listeners of your show that don't know, I mean, Freemasonry is this great organization as fraternity of friends and brothers. Um, but also there are like honors and things that a man um, or if you're in female craft masonry, like a woman also, like what, it doesn't really matter, but uh, people can get obsessed with kind of this title and thing. And then there's these like two directions you can take. One direction is like this search for never ending uh, honors and kind of Masonic idolatry. <laughs> and, and the other thing that's interesting is, is when we have like spinoff organizations based on like occult practices and with these occult practices, it's like uh, people can get lost in the make-believe just as much. And to a point, it gives them purpose. And then on another way, like, I guess it could be completely detrimental. But I guess, like, I don't know. I digress. Who am I to who am I to judge? Well, I mean, I feel like I mean, both those examples that you give, right, you know, within Freemasonry, there being, you know, that um, that side that's, you know, more about, you know, how many medals you can earn, how many different degrees you can get. And that one that's, you know, leads to that more, um, you know, esoteric line of thinking, um, you know, where, you know, you are, I mean, I don't want to say bragging about your wokeness, but, you know, there's a lot of folks that get involved in the occult and in the esoteric community that, you know, they they feel like they found enlightenment and then they're bragging about it. But really what they found is their own grandiosity. And in both those examples, I feel that that's the big struggle is with the ego or with that sense of grandiosity, right? Because no matter what path you choose in life, that struggle with the ego is always going to be there. It's a universal thing. Um, and it'll, and it'll creep into our lives and, you know, the most unexpected ways most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I often think about some of the more, you know, 
use the term grandiose. And when I hear this title of grandiose in, in Freemasonry and kind of like occult thinking, one name that always kind of pops up that I'm always thinking about is like uh, C.W. Ledbetter. Uh, as, as an occultist, you know, people praise Ledbetter and uh, really interesting and complex individual. Uh, you know, a lot of controversy around the man himself and, and, and whatnot. And I've talked before about him in other places, but, uh, you know, my opinion of the man is not very high, but what I do find interesting is he is kind of this product of early 20th century, um, spiritualism and a great book by George Tillett is he's one of his great works, uh, was this school project where he wrote a biography about Leadbeater, and he probably has the best, <coughs> excuse me, biography of all time on, on Leadbeater. It's very objective. Uh, but one of the things that he discovers, uh, is that the, the, the meaning and form of Leadbeater's abilities to do what he says he would do, uh, in, in not so many words, he almost admits to imagining it. And when questioned about it, he says, what difference does it make? If I imagine that it's real, it's real to me. Right. And that got me thinking, I don't know. You ever watched, there's a, there was a Netflix show called uh, Ripper Street. You ever seen Ripper Street? I've seen episodes of it, but I've never watched the whole thing front to back. There's, there's an episode called Ashes and Diamonds. And uh, they they arrest this dude who is a uh, like a medium, and there's like a murder, right? And and he says, I only offered the illusion that all of us crave most. This world is not so cruel as it would appear to our love, to our permanence, and not so coldly bare of magic. So like he admits, right? Like it's all a sham. But what crime is it to? give people hope. And so, you know, I think a lot about that stuff. I think a lot about people who dive into that kind of occult world of magic and illusion and occult sciences, Rosicrucianism or uh, golden dawn or alpha, Edo, you know, all these different organizations. And I think about like the people at the top of these places and kind of like the, the ability to dive into that world and live there instead of in this other world that I think you and I, you and I are, are unique individuals in that we kind of live in both uh, in terms of we, we have a lot of foundational knowledge of the occult. We're um, I mean, I won't speak for you, but you know, as a practicing occultist in some areas of my life um, but I also have to, you know, wake up every morning and go to work and do real life things and live here and accomplish the stupid stuff so that, <laughs> you know, so that we can do the other stuff. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I mean, well, I mean, anybody, you know, who, you know, studies, uh, well, I mean, first off, I'll say that any sort of spiritualism 
whether it was the spiritualism of, you know, the occult reformation, whether it's occultism, whether it's, um, you know, uh, folks, you know, uh, posing as yogis, right? There's always going to be charlatans in all of those groups trying to manipulate people to exert power over them. And whether you're, you know, um, you know, a... Uh, Someone who has exploited trust in the Catholic Church, in the Baptist Church, in any sort of spiritual-esque body, um, that's that's just the state of humanity, right? There's always going to be the flaws of, of humans in, the, in any group that has humans in it. So, I mean, I always, um, I always like the, I always think that the, that the, that the cure to that is like you said, keeping one foot in the real world and one foot, you know, in that inner world because at that point you're keeping yourself grounded, right? You're not allowing your thoughts, your mind to venture too far from what's practical and what's real because, you know, I mean, I've known a lot of folks who have gone into that, um, gone into the occult sciences, and that's the one thing that they struggle with is if you're not properly trained, if you haven't properly, um, if you haven't properly, you know, prepared yourself, you start to lose grasp with what's real. And I think that also is where that ego creeps in because, you know, when you start believing that, you know, I don't want to sound I'll put it so bluntly. When you start believing you have magical powers, then, uh, yeah, you know, you start to lose grasp with reality and start to use grasp with what those teachings are for, which is to build yourself into a more compassionate, a more universally minded individual. Yeah, that's right. And, and to, to bring that into the occult space, mm -hmm. right, is when you talk about keeping one from one foot on the floor, you know, one foot on terra firma, one one foot on in, in this reality. Uh, the tarot card is the star. It's the uh, you know in that image, you know, there's a kneeling person, and they have one foot out of the pool and one foot in the pool. Mm -hmm. An illusion of this kind of duality that exists. Um, but as you point out, this is all uh, to make the person a little bit better. But still some part of me looks at some of those teachings and, and says, look, this occult knowledge that exists at a, at a foundational level, yes, like it can be used for psychological and uh, cognitive like structuring uh, of the individual. So like, that's how I would use tarot. That's, that's how I do use tarot is, you know, a tool for self-reflection, uh, not as a divination tool, but, but also there's, there's the idea of belief, right? Like how, if the objective, if enough subjective, believers have the power of mind then it does become the, some kind of objective truth um, i mean it, that that's true even in physics to a to an extent but it begs the question you know like like we have we discovered do we like maybe we discovered the path but we're still like dullards or something or i don't know yeah i um I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, no matter how far in whatever spiritual practice that you dedicate yourself to, you know, there's always going to be, you know, that plethora that you'll hit 
that that's where you're limited at in this physical space, right? Um, you know, that that's the idea of like the ascended masters or the secret masters, right? Those guys that preserve their um, their consciousness and, you know, continue on that work in the spiritual realm, right? And, you know, they can be called upon, you know, to offer advice or to offer inspiration the way people, you know, call on saints, I think is a great example of that, right? These were, uh, these were, these were individuals that thought that their spiritual dedication was so important that they sacrificed their physical beings for that spiritual essence and for that spiritual lesson, you know, so they become these ascended masters to continue on that spiritual work and to be there as, you know, connection points that we can make, you know, in that higher spiritual realm, right? So my, I I mean, I I think uh, a lot of the issue comes in is where people start to think that they are, you know, these ascended masters or these secret chiefs or that, you know, they've made special connections with them, you know, while while you're here in this physical realm, because that's when you start to kind of go off the cliff and your subjective will just kind of start to implant things that may not necessarily be there. And, you know, once again, going back to the ego, right, that's that grandiose dragon that we need to slay because it's the ego that's going to whisper those things to you that may not be true. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And even people that I respect, you know, in the occult world uh, from, from you know, years of old, guys like, I mean, Manly Hall and, and uh, Paul, Paul Case. Paul Case says that he talked and spent time in a hotel room with St. Germain. Like, what do you mean? You know, when he writes that he did this, I mean, was this like a product of his imagination and this is how he described it because in the occult fashion, that's how you would do it. Is he, is he saying that it was just, I spent three days in a hotel room with my own mind and like asked questions and from some, somehow, you know, he was able to access, you know, some subconscious stream of, um, you know, thought that was able to give profound truths, uh, without maybe perhaps like some sort of subjective interpretation, you know, like who knows? Yeah. But, but it, but it does, it makes you wonder, you know, who, like, if you just, I've, I am accused all the time, I should say of, of oversimplifying concepts. Um, and so when I think about this, I think, you know, if I'm going to super simplify this, you know, is the ascended master just whatever, chosen name you choose to give the consciousness that talks to you like because you it's hard to realize like the duality of yourself like can you talk to your super ego and if you could what do you what name do you give him you give him is it saint germain is that who your super ego is or you know are you really channeling some sort of a a uh, i don't know a being or a consciousness of some sort somewhere. Well, I mean, either way, I mean, whether they're, you know, contacting just a higher aspect of their own consciousness or whether they are, you know, contacting a spiritual energy that, uh, you know, is, um, you know, in some sort of dimensional plane that's only accessible through our unconscious, right? I think at the end of the day, you are going to receive a universal truth that is going to be filtered through an individual subconscious. So no so whether it's real or not, 
the message that they're receiving is going to be filtered through their experiences, right? Everything good and bad uh, that they've gone through in their lives. So, you know, e so whether it's true or not, you have to hold that... Um, you have to hold that with a grain of salt, and then you have to kind of devise your own message from it, right? Something that, you know, is relevant to you. And, uh, I mean, a lot of times, you know, when it comes to these different, uh, you know, occult uh, teachers, you know, I just say stick, to, you know, to take the gems that are there and just leave the rest because no one's going to be perfect. And a lot of these, uh, a lot of these folks, you know, end up, uh, you know, dying crazy, crazy or, and, or in poverty. So, you know, it just kind of happens, but, uh, I don't know when you open yourself up to those different kind of higher rates of, uh, vibration, if, you know, these are beings of that higher realm, I mean, it's, it's gotta do its damage on the physical being, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you're thinking about, I mean, just on the, the spiritual side of things, you have to treat it. I think the modern occultist has to live the salad bar version of or the buffet version of, of occult teachings today. And, and the reason is because we have the gift of history. We have the gift of, uh, you know, parallel reading and contextual understanding Um and, and even in the culture of today where we are kind of evolving into, and I don't mean this in a derogatory or a negative way, but we have this in vogue thing right now that is, of course, judging the past by the standards of today, which can be dangerous on a multitude of levels. Um, and I think it's completely appropriate in some circumstances and, and in others, it's probably not okay to do. Um, but when I think about that, I mean, you look back at, at guys like Steinmetz and Krieger, and, and there's some cringeworthy things in some of what they wrote. Um, you can look at mainstream religion. I mean, uh, look up the cartoons from Mormonism um, that, that came out. You know, they described uh, things like African-Americans um, as reincarnated beings who did poorly in a previous existence. Like... I mean, I don't care where where you come from. That is a teaching that has a foundation in you know racist ideologies. Um, I mean, it's just crazy. So yeah, we have to live in a world that's like more of a salad bar, right? Like you should be able to kind of go from place to place and, and find uh, truths that make sense. And I think science is getting to a point where mainstream science anyway, more so in the air, in the realms of physics and, uh, and, uh, quantum mechanics and things of this nature, these more complex, but very popular subjects now with today's spiritual people, um, because they're validating each other, really. Um, when you talked about, you know, opening yourself up to these kind of higher vibrations and, and being damaging, I mean, you can think about that on a psycho a psychological level, but, also on a very practical, real, and scientific level, if perchance, let's just say that opening your, like when people say, you know, we were attuned, we we're on the same vibration, we, you know, let's pretend that science says that that's a real thing, right? As far as I know, science has not, you know, said anything like same wavelengths exist, but let's pretend that they have said that. And what if you get on a, a wavelength of some spiritual being 
like wavelength and this all this all implies a sense of radioactivity it could be highly damaging literally and phys- physically to to the human to the human body which i mean you could go anywhere you want i mean if your listeners can see my poster in the background uh i'm a i'm a big uh like believer or i should say i want to believe uh, in in things like uh you know outer world beings and extraterrestrials and in visitations and all that that stuff like i'm really interested in in the whole topic but you know thinking about even like abductees and stuff when we look at uh you know, channeling or vibrations or whatever and, and physical effects of uh, physical effects that happen to you through an experience that could be described, you know, could be described as otherworldly or uh, otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, well, I mean, I, whenever I, you know, think of like, you know, primarily like the UFO phenomenon, like, you know, the 40s and the 50s, um, I often think of how Carl Jung interpreted that, right? Like he interpreted that, um, you know, what the greys really were was this new symbol or archetype within the uh collected unconscious that was just given a brand new um, spin, right? It was just given a new form. It is that, um, you know, that kind of unnerving shadow aspect of ourselves. It's very mysterious. You don't know why it's there, right? It, uh, I mean, I mean, if you look at, you know, the activity or kind of like uh, the, the character of the greys, right? They're s- supposedly very cruel, very cold, very scientific, right? You know, they're rejecting, you know, your innate... Um, your innate position as a living being and just using you like a slab of meat for experiments for the most part, you know, so he kind of, um, he kind of looked at, um, that is kind of like, um, a re-envisioning of like a lot of these old monster shadow archetypes for a new, for a new sci-fi age. Right. So I incubus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, he, I mean, and he, he went around studying uh, at uh, abduction cases as well. And, you know, he found that a lot of it was just like mass hysteria. Or, I mean, today I personally think that a lot of, you know, abduction cases are just folks experiencing sleep paralysis for the first time and not understanding what's going on. Uh, but, you know, as well as you, like, like we said, there's always some um, charlatans out there, out there making up stories and stuff. So, oh, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I have no doubt that there are valid abduction cases that have occurred but they are far and few in between. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of truth to what you say about uh, things like sleep paralysis as somebody who has experienced that on several occasions. Uh, notably uh, when like, let's say I had a new baby uh, you know, I've got four kids and my uh, you know, w- when those kids are young uh, particularly as babies, you're not getting a whole lot of sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh so when you're overly tired, so if you ever want to experience for your audience listener, you ever want to do this, okay? Uh, deprive yourself of sleep or like be really tired and then f- like overly tired, like really, really tired. I don't mean, you know, like most of us, we just decide it's time to go to bed. Like we're not really attuned with the ability to say, hey, we're tired. Right. Like I, I, have, I can't remember the last time I said I'm tired because I was physically 
And like, you know, I was tired. Sometimes my eyes get tired, but my body isn't right. And so you just think, oh, I'll close my eyes. Well, next time you get a little bit really tired, wait, stay up. And then like, I don't know, have a little bit of sugar, wash it down with some coffee so that you raise your sugar level, then your coffee, right? The caffeine will keep you where that sugar was. It's not going to wake you up. It's not going to make you more tired. It's going to keep you where you were. So have a little coffee, try to stay up a little longer and then lay down somewhere like on your floor where it's a little uncomfortable. Try to go to sleep. And um, a lot of times that, that's like a perfect recipe for sleep paralysis. You will fall asleep and you'll kind of wake up and not be able to move. And you'll be like, this is crazy. Uh, but then just realize like, it's just sleep paralysis. It's not real. And you'll be okay. But some people really freak out. When, the first time it happened to me, my wife said, I was like making this real like faint uh, noise, you know? And in my head, I'm like, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. I'm like, hey, shake me awake. I know what's going on, but, you know, she barely heard anything. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, it, there's a lot of sense to that, especially, like, with the ideas of an incubus, you know, the weight on a chest, and you feel all this stuff, and, yeah. Yeah, and no, I used to get sleep paralysis all the time when I was a kid. Um, I didn't. I had no idea what it was. I thought it was, it was aliens, Jim. <laughs> you were abducted. I thought for the longest time. I thought it was just like that's what a nightmare was. You know, if I had a bad dream when I was like seven or eight, I thought that meant sleep paralysis. Um, and uh, thankfully, it's something that I've you know grown out of. Like the only the last time I got sleep paralysis, it was. Um, Oh man, it was probably in like early college, right? Like I'd been up, uh, I went out partying, you know, the night before, right? You know, and then, you know, bad decisions are made around 3 a.m. So you end up staying up the entire morning and then into the next day. So like by the time like eight, nine o'clock rolled around, like, like you said, I was exhausted and I was yeah. ready to uh, die out. And, uh, you know, I laid down and, uh, I passed out and then, um, I don't know, I probably, uh, I'm not sure what woke me up, whether it was like the dog, the cat, whatever the case may wa uh, may be, but like, it was probably way more visual than um, than I had uh, had, you know, as a kid. And when I was a kid, it was more like physical, um, more physical symptoms. But this one, this time I woke up and like all these shadowy arms just kind of came out like around the bed and just kind of hugged me and held me down. And it was super uh, weird because there was like one really tall figure that just kind of kept getting taller over the edge of the bed. And like until he was kind of like leaned all the way over like face to face with me. So like it was really intense. But uh, yeah, you know, 10 years after the fact, I haven't had one since. So that was probably the last time that I had one. But, um, you know, if I, did, if I had not experienced sleep paralysis as a kid, and that was one of my first time ever experiencing it, I would have no idea what the hell was going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, I, I don't know, man. Like, I think that you also have, I've known you for a while. I, you have a, you have a, background in psych in psychology uh and so do you think that your background in psychology taints how you look at some things that are paranormal um absolutely 
Um, because, uh, you know, I've known, um, I mean, I've known people who, you know, have, you know, started, uh, practicing the occult and, uh, you know, I mean, I guess paranormal practices in general and, you know, they, uh, they had, you know, a psychotic episode because of it, but like looking at them as an individual, you know, kind of knowing them before they got into it, um, it would make a lot of, I mean, it, a lot of the warning signs were there as someone who is kind of like already teetering over the edge. And I feel like a lot of those people that are antisocial, that are teetering in general, kind of are drawn to the paranormal, conspiracy theories, because, well, because two things, right? One, they feel rejected by modern society. In a lot of different facets of society, they feel like outsiders, they feel alienated, and they don't have... Um, they don't have proper support structures, right, to try and keep them grounded. And two, when you when you discover a new conspiracy theory or when you think you've had a paranormal experience, you start to feel like you're on the inside. You know something that the rest of those people don't know, and that makes you special. And when you're someone, make it easy there, QAnon. That's what I'm saying. Like when you <laughs> have been, when you're someone who feels like you're on the fringes of society and you've been alienated, you will kind of resonate with that stuff that makes you feel special. Because like we're going back to the ego, it gives you that little ego boost, and it makes you feel like you know you may know something that other people don't, and that just makes you unique and special and you know that sort of thing and uh, and this will be our segue back into freemasonry i feel like that's one of the one of the main things that a lot of people join freemasonry for they saw some nicholas cage movie and uh you know they feel that joining it is going to make them feel special and make them feel like you know they're joining this super secret organization and it's got secret handshakes and it's got all these you know trappings right and uh you know when they get there it's not giving them that ego boost that you know they thought it would and in a lot of ways, you know, they end up, um, you know, either falling out of it or they end up, you know, looking for that ego boost and, you know, gaining these titles and medals or, you know, going into the more, um, you know, esoteric side of things. Yeah, that that's a totally fair assessment. I mean, I think most people who join, as you said, we saw this big boom uh, with the... Uh, the publication of Dan Brown's works, uh, the Da Vinci Code and things. And, and then as those kind of move out of the way, we see the next iteration, right? Like the National Treasure movies, which was even more, um, I don't know, if there's a, like, they, they almost blame some of what the movie's entire uh, premise is about has a hand, you know, masonry has a hand in it. And it's really kind of an interesting uh, aspect to put into film. And then what's even more interesting is the, the amount of people who see that and then join Freemasonry. I have great friends who have achieved title and rank in this fraternity that are looked upon as titans, right? And when you ask them why they joined they will tell you flat out national treasure. And I think that was just crazy. Uh, 
you know, granted some of the guys who did join because of things like national treasure wasn't, you know, they had enough sense to know that this wasn't because it was of, um, you know, kind of the hidden weird secret stuff. It was the connection with the country, the United States, the great experiment, which is commendable. I think, I think there's a lot of wonderful history of Freemasonry and its influence on the United States. But, you know, to the people who joined because of the weird secret stuff, you know, I, I put weird in air quotes, but it's not weird to me, but, uh, but yeah, we, I, th I think when they don't get what they want, right. They, there's, there's this thing, right? Like some guys can't handle the term or the idea of something to be ineffable. And so they look for something tangible. And with a lot of Freemasonry today, like I think there is a, real secrets that are revealed not by people to an initiate, but they're revealed to the initiate by the initiate, right? By the subconscious and, and you know, your own my, mindful process going through these degrees, these, uh, these ceremonies. And so you go through the ceremonies and you have, things are revealed to you by your own subconscious mind and unconscious mind, your waking mind, whatever. And so those are the secrets. And somebody who isn't in tune with their mind might not value what they're getting. Everything is surface level. Everything is just like the words and that's what it is. And they, they don't stop to think about what the words mean or, or anything like that. So now they focus on the tangible things, which is kind of like, you know, your pancake masonry, your, your charitable clubs, uh, all of these other tangible things where you go out and you're, you're giving money and you're doing all this stuff, but you're not actually thinking about deeper concepts that relate to bettering the human, you know, bettering yourself so that you can better affect your family and then your community, you know, your, what we would call the internal lodge the external lodge and the universal lodge, right? The outer world, the greater world at large. And because of that, uh, you know, we see people just climb rank and title because it's the tangible thing. Um, but then conversely, like you said, we have people who dive into those kind of hermetic schools and that's cool too. As long as I mean, there's another danger there, which is the people who take everything in those type of places, those type of uh, occultic or occulted teachings, they take everything completely literal, which is almost as bad or worse than somebody who doesn't take any of that at all. Uh, and I worry about those folks sometimes because they're the people also who you kind of describe as believing you know to to an extent that takes them out of reality you know science deniers and you know i i don't i'm not you know i don't want to be derogatory to your audience or anything but if you used the term plandemic it might be you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no well i mean i don't know i feel like there's a danger there with every spiritual system, whether it's the occult, whether it's Christianity, whenever you are trying to 
interpret spiritual teachings as literal truth, that kind of fundamentalism is dangerous, and it always will be. And it, yep. and it's not only dangerous to society at large, as you know, you were saying with these, you know, large, uh, you know, QAnon and pandemic type conspiracy groups spreading misinformation. It's dangerous to yourself. Because it paints the world in this all or nothing, you know, black and white mode of thinking that uh, inevitably, you know, kind of drives one more towards paranoia and towards, um, um, you know, mistrust of his neighbor in general. And um, I feel that that's the uh, that's the exact opposite of what those spiritual teachings are trying to portray as truth. Yeah, that I that's exactly that's exactly the issue is, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is many, I'll use the Western religion of Christianity for a moment. Uh, many Christian theologists, theologians, um, people who just study the Bible will use this kind of saying all the time. They'll say, you know, Jesus taught in allegories. And they understand that concept, and that's great. Whether they know what that means or not is another thing. I mean, many of them do. I'm not, I'm not saying they don't. But as one of the top three religions of the world, it is recognized that the savior of that religion spoke in an allegorical sense. Doesn't it make sense also that similar archetypal characters and religious saviors the world over would also teach in that same allegorical sense or allegorical way. And so we look at things like the Bhagavad Gita, um, are probably my favorite holy book. And when I read that, it's widely apparent that it's allegorical. And for ever, uh, the Hindu faith has been open about looking at it and interpreting it, interpreting it in both ways as allegorical and literal. And we've seen how that shapes, you know, caste systems and whatnot, but, but also it has this real esoteric meaning of, uh, you know, internal struggle and, and whatnot. And so when we think about that by itself, the universal aspect of allegorical teachings by, an enlightened being uh, or an archetype of you know, savior of humanity. Uh, it, it just, it just is surprising to me that so many will take those things so literally, which is dangerous. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you were saying, you know, when someone seeks the ineffable, um, they're the only way that they can. I mean, they're going to get to that point that the only way that they can begin to interpret it is through something tangible. Right. And when you yeah. have people, you know, seeking out that, you know, I mean, the ineffable is beyond comprehension. Right. You know, we, we wouldn't even begin to our brains wouldn't even begin to dis to perceive or describe something that is ineffable, right? Something that is beyond comprehension. Um, but, you know, when you start to just 
dilute it into tangible things, right? Um, into tangible teachings, into tangible stories, into when you try and turn mythology into history, because, you know, it just makes sense that, you know, this, um, I don't, I don't want to call the, I don't want to call the Bible a cinematic universe, but the cinematic universe, you know, is, is literal truth. Um, you know, then you, you got to start, you know, drawing the, drawing the line there because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of archaeological evidence that, you know, a lot of these stories never happened, right? But that doesn't devalue them in their Correct. lessons and in their truth. Um, and, I mean, and that is, I guess I'll use that as a segue into, uh, you know, the mythology of Freemasonry, right? Is that when you really start to look at the Masonic system overall, whether you're looking at it through, you know, the um, the original, you know, intended four degrees of uh, entered apprentice, fellow craft, master mason, royal arch mason, or you look at the uh, York Rite or the Scottish Rite, you know, basically, you know, how Freemasonry evolved, it's always a search for a man trying to find the ineffable, trying to find the true name of God, right? And... Um, you know, as you kind of look at that that search for the lost word, you start to you know look at that in um, if you start to look at that in tangible ways, um, then you know you're you're going to miss the major truth that is there because the major truth is going to come from that universe within. It's not going to come from anything tangible without. Yep. Yeah. Totally agree. The, the those so. If we look at the history of Freemasonry uh, loosely and being completely objective and on, like, I'm not paid by the Scottish Rite or the York Rite or any other right to tell you, you know, where anything comes from. And what I say right now is, is completely my opinion, uh, but I'm pretty well read. So here's the thing. Freemasonry is the way it exists today in this kind of allegorical system that we have accepted as the craft originally was not the way it was. I mean, we have this idea that we're some kind of morally upright philosophical organization, but our origins simply lie in protecting the wages of guild workers and ensuring that nobody takes credit for other people's work, that secrets of your trade, maybe it's sweating pipes, were not given to people who didn't pay their union dues. And so when we look at that, and then you look at, you know, kind of the enlightenment and Renaissance periods, and how those might have influenced thinking, then you have an influx of people who come into the craft who dive back into antiquity to give it a history that is fanciful, is immersive, is romanticized above anything else. And then they create a ritual that amalgamates from systems 
that many people, you know, occultists uh, talk about all the time. And, and, you know, occultists try to sp create spinoff groups to separate the systems or whatever. But these systems, you know, are, are really kind of timeless. They go from Grecian mystery schools to, quote unquote, Egyptian mystery schools to, um, you know, up to the Roman Mithraism and, and temples, uh, you know, and, and all of these kind of schools, they, I mean, honestly, it's uh, ritualistic appropriation by culture. And so each one takes it, right? And so the progenitors of, of this particular institution in the 18th century are looking at creating, you know, something that is meaningful and has ties to things like religious and philosophical values and so that's why we see all of these kind of things tied in and, and pull through and so in a sense it's it's kind of made up right and because it's made up people they they believe so heavily in masonry that they think that every bit of the craft and its tale and its its archetypal kind of story is a literal truth which again is a danger uh but looking at it archetype archetypally or if you look at it in a way of saying this is really great teachings that we pulled from really great things in the past and we put it we packaged it in this system of degrees so a first second third degree and and then you know if you subscribe to the the royal arts degree or whatever um, you know it gives you this kind of complete picture of the grandiose truths that affect the the person and what is that singular truth you know, it's revealed unto the initiate and, you know, whatever that grandiose truth is, I, I think I know what it is for me. And I think that just ties back to the same thing that it was, uh, you know, at, at Eleusis or something else. Um, but regardless of what it is, right, it's a personal truth, right? And so you can't keep going out to get degree after degree after degree you know we get guys who just chase all these organizations and degrees like there's something they're gonna get it i mean the selling point of the royal arch today is you get the word that's lost and then when you finally get the word that's lost you say to yourself i hear that word all the time like that word's on buildings you know <laughs> and and then you go oh, okay right and then the search continues I, I always, you know, not to harp on the craft or be mean about it. I mean, I'm a dedicated Freemason. I love Freemasonry. I love the craft. I, I'm a member of several organizations and I, I spend, you know, 50% of my time on this earth doing things for Freemasonry. But also at the same time, I think sometimes, I don't know. I kind of feel like y'all, you ever seen Spaceballs, right? When, when yogurt is showing off all of the products <laughs> and he's like, look at this space balls too. the search for more money. <laughs> like that's Freemasonry. Right. <laughs> Whatever. Right. The search for more money. Right. Right. Cause there's always going to be another, right. Uh, well, and I guess kind of to take it back. I mean, I, 
I'll agree with you that, you know, the first instances of masonry, you know, were in these trade groups, right? And these trade groups, you know, they weren't all just there to protect secrets and, you know, make sure wages were, uh, you know, given out accordingly. But they were also there to protect widows, right? They were also there to take care of the families in case, you know, someone, um, you know, I don't know a giant block fell from a cathedral and landed on someone, right? Crippled them for life. You know, they, they would still be there to be taken care of, right? And I think that that is one of the first instances of class action, right? Of a, of a working class getting together and organizing to protect their own from these, you know, uh, from these, you know, rich interests or the um, the monarchical interests at the time, right? And, you know, you start to see that core truth of, right, collected action to make your community better um, evolve into that enlightenment thought when, you know, you had all these, you know, brilliant thinkers, you know, kind of start, you know, asking these questions like Thomas Paine did, you know, in common sense. And you start to see this, you know, drastic drastic shift in how the um, working class started to view themselves in relation to, you know, the wider world, right? And until, you know, they start to ask themselves, well, why are we allowing these mo- these monarchs to rule us, right? When we're the ones creating this, uh, creating this productivity, we're the ones really moving forward, um, you know, for colonial masonry, I'll just use, you know, the British monarchs as an example, right? Um, so, you know, even to the point that, you you know, a lot of these uh, colonial leaders, you know, were Freemasons in that way. And a lot of times it's that separation of, um, of I guess, private power and private work from these, uh, you know, governmental monarch uh, system or <laughs> monarchical systems. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just laughing because you mentioned Thomas Paine, who I friggin love. Oh, uh, he's one, of, he's one have, of my favorite philosophers. I, I have, you know, l- literally... Uh, if people can see this, I have literal leather bound volumes of Thomas Paine. One of my favorite quotes from Thomas Paine, you just mentioned government. He says, government, even at its best state, is but a necessary evil. Yeah. In its worst state, an intolerable one. <laughs> <laughs> he was the, the man himself. I mean, uh, did not mince words. He was egregious. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and uh, and I mean, I don't know, that's what you needed, right? And, uh, you know, kind of going back on uh, what you're saying about, you know, judging the past by today's standards, you know, even though, you know, you think of, you know, the founding fathers, though a lot of them did own slaves, and though, for the most part, the country that they initially created was to benefit wealthy landowners, at that point in time, they were the most progressive people on the face of the earth. Abraham Lincoln, even though he suspended habeas corpus, he was still the most progressive person on the face of the earth in that time. Um, so much so he received fan letters from Karl Marx. Um, so, you know, when it, you know, so, you know, you know yesterday's uh, 
or I guess uh, today's evil, you know, is yesterday's hero, right? Um, and it's always that progression forward, little by little, you take, you know, a, a step forward, you take two steps back kind of mentality, because, I mean, that's just how change occurs, right? But, you know, at every instance of change, primarily in the American story, you know, masonry is there in one step or another. And, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, that initial um, progressive moral science, you know, is, um, I mean, it's pertinent to the American story. And I think that's what makes it resonate with people, uh, you know, primarily in this country. Yeah, I mean, arguably, our founding documents are exactly Masonic tenets. Uh, we see the, the influence that that the Masonic fraternity has on on all of those documents. Uh, yes, a great number of people who signed the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, whatever you want to call it, it, yeah, they're Freemasons. But like the experience that those people had, uh, you know, in in terms, I mean, this is this is an age where Freemasonry perhaps for the first time in a long while, maybe, maybe the only time it'll ever happen. And maybe that's just awesome in itself and it'll never happen again. But Freemasonry had this point where it also stood for ideals that were not as popular, but the passage of those ideals during and with its influence uh, created this balloon of like pride about the Masonic fraternity. But what's interesting is since that time, Freemasonry has not been as influential. We saw with things like the Capitol riots that happened, you know, in, in January, uh, we see that and then there was always this kind of interesting point people kept making and they kept saying how is what they did at the capitol different from the boston tea party we celebrate those patriots today and i didn't have i didn't have the words to because i don't feel that they're equitable in any sense but i had to go to I mean, I think, you know, Mike Shirley, I had to ask Mike Shirley. I said, Mike, what, what the hell do I say to this? Right. And Mike, you know, he doesn't, Mike doesn't mince words. And he gave me a statement that was, I was like, that's, that's, that's just all right, Mike, I'm going to use that. And um, what's interesting is the fraternity doesn't have that kind of same influence today. So when, what I'm what I'm saying, I'm not equating the Masonic fraternity with you know capital riots, but what I am saying is, what what was being called for at a, at that point in our nation's history, we stood for, and that was kind of a political thing. And Masonry does not deal in politics um, as a matter of fact, and so. In my opinion, like any any awesome progress that that masonry, uh, not progress, any any great influence that masonry had in the past, in terms of creating a better life for people uh, by way of physical action, is gone. We will not see it again because we've, in my opinion, we've neutered our, our ability to do that. Um, 
we we do still see like for instance in france where you have you know masonic organizations that exist there's there's two grand lodges in france uh one is recognized meaning you know it's a it's been legitimized by other lodges and grand lodges in the United States and lodges around the world. But the other one also admits women and uh, admits uh, people who don't have the specific belief in a deity. And so they've been called clandestine. But some of the things that that organization still does is looks out for things within their community. They do get political. And Am I envious of that? I'm a little bit envious in that, not that I want to get political, but I think I should be able to go to my lodge and say, hey, you know, the local plumbers union, uh, they're, they're getting trampled by so-and-so. I think we should stand up and, and march with those guys. You know, that's, that's just basic wage and living rights. Like, you know, I, I think that's a good idea. But Freemasonry and large does not think that's a good idea. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I would agree with you on that because um, you know, looking at looking at just like membership rates in Freemasonry over the decades, you know, you see this the the last giant burst in membership Masonry had was you know in the forties uh, and fifties, right? And um, you know, a lot of folks would say that that is because of. You know, a lot of guys coming back from World War II wanting that camaraderie. And, you know, historically, I would disagree. I would say that the reason why you had that kind of an impact on membership is because of the progressive stances that Masonry had back then. They helped all... I mean, Freemasonry, if you start to research it, is indispensable from the labor movement of the of the 20s of the 30s and of the 40s um you know trying to get these new deal kind of laws passed trying to get you know this reimagining of the american economy freemasonry was very um influential in getting all these unions up off the ground and organizing these labor strikes and organizing these marches and you know you see masonic leadership you know also being in union leadership and it was so entwined once again like i said with that class struggle that um, I that it 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 was a it was a thing of honor within your union to be a member of the fraternity, even if it was only like a you know off the books kind of thing. So a lot of these guys returning from war, yeah, I'm sure they wanted camaraderie similar to what they find in the military, but they could have joined you know the VFW, they could have joined you know any number of these uh, veterans groups, but no, they choose, they chose to become Masons because of how connected Masons were to the labor movement at the time. Yeah. I mean, like begets like, and when you have these kind of, I don't know what you call them. Um, you get a line graph, two lines intersect, right? And you, in masonry finds itself at a lot of social uh, inter, in, intersection points in, in whether that's labor unions or that is the uh, in vogue thing of, of being completely social, right? Dinner clubs and all of these kinds of things and going to social organizations. Freemasonry was really big on that. You know, you see these, these pictures that hang in Masonic halls all over the world of 200 masons packed into a room in a dining hall and they're all you know holding their glasses high and they got all the ladies everybody's dressed to the nines and it's really amazing and they and, and we get all these guys today and they say you know well, 
we need to get back to that. Bro, it is never going to be that. Uh, and I'll tell you why, because that's just not where society is headed. We are a, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that say, you know, uh, people today are just un, they're not connected. Uh, I disagree. Like, I think we're more connected than ever on two levels, of course, electronically connected, right? But we're staying in contact more. And people say, what? but yeah, it's superficial though. Okay, so before I had, let's just say 10 deep connections and maybe two superficial ones. Now I've got 15 deep connections and 150 superficial ones. I'm, I'm still more connected than I was before, uh, even though you know, we're expanding. And, and so when I look at Freemasonry and I think, you know, that's never going to happen again, right? Because number one, we just don't have the kind of numbers to do that. Um, I think our organization has some pitfalls that they need to be addressed if they want to be, we always get these calls like we need more membership. And then the other people say, we don't need membership. We need quality people. It's, qu it's quality over quantity. And that's true too. Um, but like, if you want 200 people events, then yeah, you need to put it together. But we're also, we also have like a lot of ineptitude when it comes to event planning and staying current with, uh, you know, modern day thinking. Right. And just technology in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, get a lodge event, right. Or something. And who knows how that's going to work. Well, I mean, I mean, it doesn't, you know, I mean, it, it hurts that, uh, you know, your average member is what, probably 68 at this point. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they're not going to be prone to, um, you know, to you to utilizing this uh, new technology and, to, you know, kind of uh, modernizing the craft in general. And I feel like, you know, going back to that uh, that the discussion of stagnation that we had, it just seems like, you know, when the craft disconnected itself from its from its progressive purpose right um whether you know and and i would still state that historically that progressive purpose is you know um is you know class mobilization uh when you um yeah when you when you remove that you know kind of purpose from it because you know it's deemed political now you're uh, finding yourself in a position where you can't talk about any issues that are um, connected to the original intent that masonry had as a guild, right? And then was uh, also, uh, you know, uh, reinforced. I would say strongly, you know, in its ideals in the in the Enlightenment movement. If you've uh, disconnected yourself with the purpose of the craft, then you're just going to, you're no longer going to have that connection to that ineffable, right? That path for your search for that ineffable because, you know, the idea of, you know, struggling against, you know, tyrants, the idea of, you know, rate of uh, raising wages for your fellow community, right? Lift, you know, being, being that water that lifts all boats, not just your own. Um, it only leaves you with those tangible things. And that's why, you know, you see just a focus on either, you know, getting guys just to, take their degrees so they can pay dues and just, you know, have an extra pair of hands for the uh, pancake breakfast the following month or whatever the case may be. Yep, absolutely. Think about the founding of the country. I mean, what we're seeing at the foundation of the country is a group of people who got tired of seeing uh, poverty. They got tired of seeing uh, 
you know, atrocities against the people and inequities between people. Uh, the one of the famous things that happened during the you know American Revolution is you know deals with Sam Adams. Sam Adams brought together a lot of people. Uh, he was the glue that held some things together uh, within the American Revolution. Of course, he wasn't the top dog or anything, but uh, you know, reality, uh, you know, kind of a I think he's like over a little over forty. He's overweight and kind of a drunk. Uh, but nonetheless, he's involved with something called the Boston Caucus. Boston Caucus is, okay, so think about uh, the, the word caucus itself, meaning kind of the uh, a group of people meeting together to form a political movement or uh, who agree on common position. And that position for the Boston Caucus anyway, uh, under the leadership of Sam Adams, Okay, he's he's intent on protecting the rights of Boston's lower and middle classes, as well as protecting social programs, social programs that also benefit those same classes. So what we're seeing here is a form of social welfare that he's upholding in his day to day life, that, that that what you're talking about, the water that raises all boats. And so Freemasonry today can't do that. Uh, I mean, with that influx you talked about, 40s and 50s, and in some of the stuff that happened in the 20s, made Freemasonry really popular because it did it did still stand for that stuff. You know, will those ideas that Freemasonry stands up to or stands for, and the things that it's supposed to stand up to, like intolerance, injustice, inequity, um, preserving the ideas of uh, you know life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? It's supposed to stand for those things. Those are, those are you know, uh, inalienable rights that don't belong to the, na like, they don't belong to nationalism at all. Those are human rights. And Freemasonry has largely made a, a case of standing up for those things. But also, when that ideology has been tested in today's market, we failed. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um... I mean, well, I, I feel like even even um, human rights and, you know, in part, primarily in this political climate, um, you know, I mean, granted, things have uh, cooled down a little bit over the last uh, few months. But, um, you know, given the uh, political climate, even human rights have been politicized to the point that, um, you know, you are able to turn a blind eye to, you know, abuses of children being put in cages. You're able to turn a blind eye to, um, you know, people getting um, forced hysterectomies, right? Like things that are documented that happened by our government mm -hmm. and we are not allowed to have an opinion of it and you're not really allowed to discuss those things because of how divisive they are and that's that, right and yeah yeah yeah, yeah go go ahead I'm, I'm sure you got I was just saying, that. like <laughs> let 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 a let a politician say the word freemasonry and we won't be able to practice it anymore that's yeah. that's the that that is the stance of a lot of Masonic lodges around the country. Um, some grand lodges, even I mean, of course, I'm being uh, overly. Uh, I, I'm imagining this scenario, right? It, it's it's uh, it's conflated, but um, the 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 point being is that you know Masonry in large today has taken this thing where it's like an excuse. They use it as an excuse. No politics as an excuse 
as an excuse for no action. But if, but then again, the younger generation of Freemasons, me, myself, you, and uh, you know, we know quite a few brothers who are upset by this and don't stand that way. And we voice our opinions quite frequently. Um, and I think that's the, that's the body of Freemasonry that will continue to grow. That is the body of Freemasonry that will continue to gain traction and ultimately end up leading this craft into the next generation um, and probably will redefine or not redefine, but reestablish the, the tenets and the virtues that we stand for as an organization. Um, I couldn't have been prouder uh, for the Grand Lodge of North Carolina when they marched with the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of North Carolina uh, at the Capitol over the death, uh, the murder of George Floyd. Um, I was like, that to me was doing what we're supposed to do. But it was considered political by many, you know, and they denounced it. Masonry shouldn't have a stance on that because it's political. Oh, what part of human injustice and inequity is political? Well, all of it, apparently, because we raise money for organizations that are supposed to fund these things. So because a politician has an opinion on it, it is political and ipso facto. We're not allowed to talk about it. That's messed up. Yeah, yeah, it just seems like um, a level of avoidance, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to place it on the generation right in, in charge of you know a lot of these uh, groups right now, Congress included, but it feel I, I feel like that avoidance is the reason that we are in this um, situation. And uh, I'm just going to go off on a political rant here, is that both parties over the course of 40 years have used social issues as a wedge between their um, their partisans to make it that these economic issues are either not discussed or are so... Um, are so... Um, drowned out by these social issues that they're just never addressed, right? I mean, you look at uh, you look at the recent uh, stimulus package, right? You know, just because one or two senators said, "No, we're not going to have this," they scrapped so much of it that would have gone to relieve the suffering of American citizens, and uh, you know that that avoidance is the issue. That avoidance is the reason why, you know, we can't have a practical discussion and compromise on ways to sustain the middle class because everyone's screaming about uh, social issues. Everyone's screaming about now even conspiracy theories. I mean, it's uh, the, the, the entire the entire political process through avoidance have ju has just um, I mean, it's just declined to the point that nothing can be accomplished. Yeah, I mean, uh, the conspiracy, I love a good conspiracy theory. Um, I find them amazing and entertaining <laughs> and scary, and sometimes they turn out to be true. And uh, But I, I agree. Uh, the, the, issue, I, the issue of a two-party system that continually works against each other while holding hands in some respects and uh, only backing certain things that are exactly the same based on who has put them on the table, give me a break. Yeah. You know, work for the American people for once. I shouldn't say for once. I mean, there is a ton of good that's being done, but I mean, you know, I, I just wish there was better 
bipartisan. I mean, I wish it was better bipartisan everything. And we stopped stepping on things just because of the word Republican or Democrat. I mean, good God, people are dying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there, it needs to come to a time that when human rights trumps partisanship, uh, no pun intended there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I will, um, I know, j- just to kind of go back, you know, you said that this was the only time that uh, masonry, um, you know, kind of went through this. And I'm going to have to disagree with you there because historically, um, I believe right after um, the Morgan affair, right after, you know, the formation of the anti-Masonic party, uh, Masonry, I mean, even through the Civil War and parts of Reconstruction, Masonry was completely disconnected from that purpose because they were shooed from all political life um, and all political discussion in that regard. And, um, you know, when you look at like, you know, Masonry in like the 1880s to like the early, you know, 1920s, that's when you kind of had that romanticism that you were talking about come in, right? Where these guys came in and they started making up these elaborate degree systems, you know, from all these uh, different degrees that were just kind of uh, being traveled around by these. I mean, they're they're almost like degree salesmen, you know. You'd get a guy coming come across your lodge that you know claims that he could make you a royal master or whatever the case may be. So you start seeing this romantic uh, this romanticizing of the degrees and putting them together into these rites, and you start seeing them, you know, connect to all of these. Um, these schools of antiquity and, you know, these uh, these myths, including, you know, crusading knights and, you know, uh, Greco-Egyptian mystery schools. And I feel like it's that romanticization and the refocusing of the craft on these kind of more esoteric ideals that really grounded the craft overall and um, kind of helped them rediscover that progressive purpose. Yeah. Uh, I was, when you said you disagreed, I just wanted to lean in and say Mm -hmm. wrong. (laughs) Uh, No, you are right there. That, that, that is a, that is great insight. Um, and I think there is a definite without the injection of the philosophical, without the backing of the kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, uh, early or late early 20th century late 19th century focus on the occult without the focus on without the injection of the people interested in those things into this fraternity who later uh spun off countless organizations i mean probably the two biggest organizations to spin around Freemasonry and from Freemasonry would are, are really the, the ideas of the Rosicrucian uh, schools, you know, really. A, a, and, and probably as much as I, I don't know, I have a real weird relationship mentally with theosophy, but, but theosophy in general has done, an insane number on uh, what is considered a cult and new age, uh, new age Christianity, Rosicrucianism. And uh, they did a wonderful job of blending a lot of things together and, and, and really uh, uh, removing the blindfold of, 
of the similarities between the systems, both religious, mythological, and occult systems in almost every major religion. Um, and so they definitely, that, that injection, that refocusing definitely grounded the fraternities for sure. Uh, and I, I still think that there's, it is kind of interesting because people at the, at these, you know, administrative levels of grand lodges, you generally don't think that they have any kind of clue to a lot of this stuff. Cause they don't talk about it and they, they don't, they don't, you would think that's like the CEO of a company who loves, you know, tarot might, might then say something about tarot every once in a while or offer tarot to his constituents. Um, but uh, no, they just say, you know, they, they keep it administrative and charitable and tangible. I mean, there's a brother that I know who worked for a Grand Lodge and is a very esoteric individual. And uh, he, he was like kind of the night cleaner for the Grand Lodge. And one night while cleaning a grand secretary's office or right on the grand secretary's desk, thumb, you know, uh, uh, and like, you know, he flipped through it, right? It's this big book on Rosicrucian theology and things and just annotations all, or, you know, footnotes all along the sides of the, uh, the margins of the book and dog-eared pages everywhere. And that's when this particular individual said, I guess they just don't talk about it. <laughs> you know, it, it is weird, right? But they, they're the, the grounding, the foundation of all that is, is definitely there and has kept this fraternity uh, healthy. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that's, um, that's going to be the important set or uh, the importance of this next, uh, progression of masonry right is that it's going to need that time to get more philosophical to ground itself and reframe itself on those philosophical tenets and it's you know i i feel that you know and it may be a 50-year process right similar to the way it was you know from you know the 1880s to like the 1930s of this, you know, regrounding in philosophical ideals, but that will energize and refocus the craft, um, you know, back to those progressive causes, right, of, you know, of, uh, you know, being there to stand up for human rights, being there as a, um, as, you know, a deterrent for human suffering, Right in any way, shape, or form, whether it's uh, economical, whether it's uh, political, uh, because you know, I mean, you look at the history of Freemasonry across you know its entire span of history, and every time there is an injustice, there's always a Mason there, um, whether you know he's there or not, standing up against it. You know, whether it was, um, you know, the brethren, um, you know, Nazi Germany working behind the scenes, you know, making uh, or trying to, you know, get people out through the Underground Railroad, similar to uh, in the South as well during Reconstruction. A lot of lodges were participated in the Underground Railroad. You know, you always see that there the more you look into it. And um, I feel that. Philosoph that philosophical reframe is necessary part of the process into getting that action because, you know, you have to have an ideal and you have to have those thoughts that come from 
um, reflecting on that ideal and those thoughts are inevitably what turn into action. And I guess I'll use that as a segue because, you know, trying to help with that progressive uh, or that uh, progression back into the philosophical, you have a new book out and uh, that is the master's word, correct? Yeah, that is absolutely correct. Yeah, The Master's Word, a short treatise on the word, the light, and the self. So that book, and I know you've been working on this concept for, God, about 10 years. I remember, uh, I think it was our uh, trip down to St. Louis that, um, you know, you started, uh, you know, kind of talking about your ideas about the uh, the lost word and that and the importance of that, you know, search for the ineffable. So uh, give us a little background on this current project. Yeah, so the project is, of course, uh, as you you talked about kind of this idea of looking for the word in some kind of tangible way. And I, I, when I talk about this in some organizations, lodges or, you know, wherever, um, I kind of, I kind of half joke about, about it. But the joke is like, maybe I was one of those people that the search for the master's word to find it, like it could somehow do something for me. You know, like abracadabra, you know, boom, I get something. Um, and I don't think I was ever really that way, but, but the, that's kind of like in a nutshell, oversimplification is my, is my uh, forte. Uh, but in an oversimplification way, I mean, that, that's what people really think. Like you become some ascended master and, you know, you're, you wear, you get to wear a cloak everywhere and you, you fly to Egypt on the, the solstice, you know, whatever the case is, right? Like some kind of a magic thing. And, so my research about the, the word is like, what actually is it? Uh, is it a concept? Um, is it a, a mix of concepts? Uh, and I had received like a resolution, like a, like a high resolution uh, image uh, from uh, an occultist who lived in uh, Brazil. And this, this this thing I just call it the map. So you know the human body, kind of the, the the human the human body laid over Solomon's temple. Sorry about my dogs. Uh, Solomon's temple. The uh, idea of Camelot. You know, thinking about oh, Camelot is kind of this etheric place. Uh, Solomon's temple was a physical place. Oh, is there a duality that's going on here? You know, what is this all trying to tell you about everything that that, that goes on? And, and really, it's kind of like a map of the occult. And so in my studies and going back and forth on, on this topic and reading all these books, you know, Steinmetz and Krieger and reading what Manley Hall says and reading every Masonic, literally every Masonic book that talks about, you know, the word, uh, I've, I've probably read 20% of them. And um, I mean, that's a large number of books. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it's a lot. And one that I came across was uh, called The Master's Word a short treatise on the word, the light, and the self. And it was an address to Rosicrucians and Freemasons uh, by a man named George Winslow Plumer. Uh, George Plumer wrote this book, and I read it from cover to cover um, in like a day and a half. And I was so, I was so really kind of in love with the book because it... It was written in 1913, and at this point, 
the book that was my favorite that kind of dealt with this real close uh, version of of what could be considered, uh, I guess, a central dogma or divine secret of humanity. And I'm I'm in like real the real deal, the real schnit. Um, is what was a book by Milton A. Pottinger, The Symbolism, A Treatise on the Soul of Things. It's got this really long title, but that's the short version. And I had picked up that book and I read it and I loved it. And I thought, this is this is it. And then I read, I guess you could call it a more concise book. And that was this master's word. It came in at like a hundred pages. You know, it's a small little book. And original copies were going on eBay for like 500 bucks or something stupid. Uh, but we were able to get a, um, a facsimile reprint. And the facsimile reprints are fine, right? Like the print quality is meh. They're not searchable. They're not usually on Kindle. Uh, you could download them from archive and put them on your device or whatever. But they're just not formatted right. And they all, the language is sometimes archaic and, you know, what have you. And so George Plumer in 1913 really expressed a lot of the great truths um, that in a way that was so concise and so easily and easy to consume, even more so than, than the meaning of masonry by, by Wilmshurst, right? That's another friggin' amazing book. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if I'm going to recommend a book on the dogma of Freemasonry, it's probably the, the meaning of masonry by Wilmshurst. Um, but the master's word was particularly interesting because both of these books, Wilmshurst and Plumer, reference this idea of an archetype, a divine archetype. Um, so what we decided to do with this version of the master's word would be to basically retypeset the whole thing and then annotate like every page, every concept that is explained, right? Like a lot of times people will read an occult text and they'll read 500 pages and be like, what the hell did any of this even mean? Like they spoke in this weird twilight language and people don't know what any of it means. And it's really hard to understand. It's archaic. What does even this word mean? Um, so what we did was we went through and we annotated the whole book. Um, and then we, we added a couple chapters, basically like a prologue and an epilogue. Um, Plumer was really an interesting individual because he was a Freemason, uh, part of the Rosicrucian, uh, group in Freemasonry, but Going back to the idea that you talked about a few minutes ago, you kept saying this progressive thing that masonry is, right? And there's probably some some real tight, tight wadded, tight knitted masons out there that are going, no, progressive means liberal. You know, and, and the idea though is it says right in our our words that we're a progressive moral science. Right? And so how much more progressive can you get than in 1913 and the years leading up to it, Plumer works with a friend of his and they create 
because he's a member of the Rosicrucians, which is a Masonic organization, you know, today they're, you know, they're, they're viewed as kind of elite, right? As an elitist kind of faction in Freemasonry. Well, this same kind of elitist faction in Freemasonry existed then too. Uh, and he decided with somebody else that it was like, why do only dudes get to be a part of this? So they, he creates a Scientist Rosicrucia in America, right? And um, so there's some confusion over SRIA and SRI in America, right? Um, but essentially, he creates a Rosicrucian spinoff group that has men and women in it. Um, and what's interesting about the work is that he does a phenomenal job of tying things together in kind of this archetypal way where he explains like the first iteration of like perhaps the great teachers of the ages. And when he does this, it's like Krishna, Ahura Mazda, the Buddha, the Christ, right? And so with those teachers, uh, he kind of alludes to this fact that it's a new age kind of concept also that the Christ, the inner Christ, right? The, that all, all people have the ability to attune to the inner Christ and, and this kind of thing. And I guess in some respects, it might be somewhat mm, blasphemous, right? Because you're taking away the divinity of the, uh, the Jesus of Nazareth. Um, but in this way, like it's also, it holds that person up as like, at the point, according to Plumer and the Rosicrucians that uh, he was with, and still today, that particular Rosicrucian group views Jesus of Nazareth as the most advanced, like, conscious consciousness to date, um, based on based on you know how they feel and their religious uh, fundamentalism. Uh, and I use fundamentalism not as a negative. I should I should say that. And so we decided we just had to do this. We had to re-release this book and get it out there because uh, it's a much needed text. The facsimiles don't do it any kind of justice. Um, and in order to re-release it and give it meaning, you know, we did want to add additional context and uh, and chapters to it. Uh, but yeah, it is interesting. Plumer himself was a an individual that was controversial at times. Yeah, I, Plumer is interesting because the first book I came across by him um, was uh, his uh, book. I want to say it was just called Esoteric Masonry, where it kind of just like breaks down just like all the general esoteric... Um, traditions that are found in the craft right and kind of why they're there um but uh, you know when he founded the uh, society of rosicrucia in america the one thing that i uh, found really um relieving in a lot of ways about um uh that organization because i've read you know a, a couple of the books that uh they've had um it takes away a lot of the um, the mystery and kind of the pageantry that one associates with traditional Rosicrucianism. And it basically makes those teachings 
as practical as possible. It, you know, sticks with the message and it sticks with the philosophy and kind of removes out, um, you know, all the rituals and all the, um, you know, the robes, the incense, you know, all the stuff that's traditionally, you know, viewed as kind of that uh, Rosicrucian aesthetic. And it just focuses on what the message should be. How do you find that point within yourself that is Christ-like? that find that point within yourself that that is so forgiving, so compassionate that you accept anyone even if they even if they hurt you, you know, as um as completely necessary to their existence and to be completely I mean I, I kind of look at it like look at it from like um uh, and I know it's a bad example but one of the tenets of Burning Man is what they call radical inclusion. That, you know, no matter where you find a person in their life, you accept them unconditionally for who and how they are in that moment. Never judge them. Always accept them. And even if they do you dirty, forgive them and accept them for who they are. Because we're all humans and we're all struggling with finding that sense of uh, that sense of humanity in others. You know, seeing that that portion of ourself and every other human being. Um, so, you know, when you're really focusing on, you know, how to be more Christ-like, um, you know, practicality isn't a bad thing. No. And, and that was something that I think I connected with Plumer on uh, while moving through this work. Um, people say like, you can read a book and you get it. But then they say like, well, if you were to, like if you're studying listening to a lecture. Okay. Listen to it, write it down. Okay. Listen to it, write it down, say it. I can't tell you how many times I've written this book, uh, going through the editing process, uh, and typesetting it. And one of the things that is just overwhelmingly apparent is, or where I connected with him on is this idea that I do oversimplify things. I do make things practical. Um, you know, I, I'm not one. I'm, I, I've been accused of of this for for a long time. And one of the things that I think uh, Plumer does really well in the text is is not only simplify and make things practical, and and you know remove the mist, right? Instead, he just tells you the way it is. Uh, in, in a quote, the, I think it's the first uh, first two sentences of the chapter, the word, the light, and the self. Later in the book, it says, the day of the supernatural is passing. That only is supernatural, which pertains to our present state of being. And the supernatural is, in reality, only the unexplained natural. Like, he's, he's, he's basically saying, like, look, there is no uh, bit of whatever you want to call it. Uh, the ineffable will soon be uh, something to be known. But also, as somebody who speaks on science and things within the book, I mean, he talks about uh, the ability of a body to fight diseases and things. And I kept, you know, when, when you read this book the first time, you know, you read one of these these books from the early 20th century, you, you start thinking like, all right, when do you rub in your hands? When are they going to get racist? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he doesn't, you know, when, when is he going to make some goofball claim about, uh, uh, medicine? Oh, oh, he doesn't. It, it's, it just is wild to me that he just 
never goes there and he stays pretty scientific throughout but but also he does the same thing that you alluded to earlier which is that a lot of the stories and things and historicity of of our allegories and mythologies and religions have been proven to be false but it doesn't change the value because it affects somebody and changes the way that they have their in you know, their existence and thereby, you know, affecting their families and communities and, and you know, humanity at large. Um, one of the things that is in the book uh, is there's, an, there's a part in the book that basically talks about uh, where he breaks down each of the saviors, uh in like linear fashion from what we would consider the beginning to now. And he expounds upon their similarities and the things that they taught um, to affect uh, people where they were in their, you know, in, in the time that they lived kind of like the, the burning man virtue. Um, and also he talks about, or doesn't really talk about it, but he acknowledges the fact that, and this is paraphrasing and I'm, I'm pulling from what he said to, to give you the statement, but it's like, there are problems that exist today that we don't know exist. And we think that's just the way something is because our brain is literally incapable of conceptualizing it. That is in fact, ineffable. And at some point in the future, the human brain, if we're so lucky, will move to a point where we are able to conceptualize that problem and see it for what it is and then fix it. Um, so it, it is a, a really interesting book in that way. Yeah, I can. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it kind of like is a perfect you know, representation of that transition, right? Before, you know, human beings, you know, we um, we learn symbolically, right? So in a lot of ways, you know, the consciousness of the past, it needed symbols and allegory to be able to kind of have that tangible understanding of the ineffable. But, you know, as time goes on, as we evolve and as we start to understand, you know, the actual tenets of how the universe works through quantum mechanics and through, you know, um, just, you know, the, the exploration of science and physics, you know, we're going to have those answers. And it's going to be vastly different than anything that we thought of when we, um, you know, kind of had the idea of, you know, what that truth would be from our symbolic mindset, right? Um, but, you know, I think that the importance of these, you know, mystical studies is that, you know, it kind of widens your consciousness to where you will be accepting of, you know, the, um, the inevitable discoveries of science, right? I mean, uh, you know, I mean... You look at, you know, like the transition from, you know, alchemy to chemistry, right? You know, these, uh, these chemical, um, these chemical processes that they were experimenting with in the very, you know, very beginnings of what chemistry would become, you know, they represented them all as this, you know, philosophical kind of allegory, but, you know, as 
as that kind of uh, philosophical allegory and as that kind of reflection, you know, allowed society to break away from the superstitions of the past, it allowed that practice to become more scientific. And, you know, I mean, in a way, I guess, to become more tangible as well. But, you know, uh, society overall no longer saw that as a type of witchcraft. It was just science and fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's just, uh, it's one of those things, too, that we see allusions to, uh, in in the time when Plumer was writing uh, his books, we see a great many others who move around the world as people who are lecturing and uh, comforting the rich with their, uh, you know, the thing through their mediumship of the, the hidden worlds or whatever, right? It, they do this for money. And they speak in a way that is not ever meant to be uh, intellectualized or understood truly, right? Because it's just like waxing poetic about kind of etheric concepts that, you know, you've managed to say in 500 words, literally nothing. Um, and Plumer doesn't do that. Uh, which I think is one of the reasons why he is lesser known, right? Because there's nothing to talk about. He just told you. It wasn't like when you read somebody perhaps like Leadbeater or um, something perhaps. Uh, I was going to say Annie. <laughs> right, yeah. So Pike writes, you know, extensively in an, in an airy kind of fashion. And it's beautiful. But at the same time, there's a reason why Rex uh, created or wrote A Bridge to Light. I mean, essentially everything that's in Morals and Dogma can be put into a much more concise version that is, I don't know, able to be absorbed by the reader um, and intellectualized in a much thinner and smaller book with color pictures. <laughs> um <laughs> So, and, and people love to talk about those characters because there's so much to talk about because you can, you have questions about what's, what's meant here. And there's just none of that mincing with, with guys like Plumer, with guys like Wilmshurst. I mean, Wilmshurst, there's a little bit, but at some point it's almost like a conscious effort because even though I know what the dogma is, even though I know what the central quote unquote secret is, even though I know the divine secret of life, it feels like you're not allowed to say it out loud for whatever reason. And they just get real close. Wilmshurst get, you know, Pottinger gets really close. Wilmshurst even closer, but Plumer just kind of says it or Rather, he tells you how to come up with four when he gives you the digits to add up to four. He's like, this is how you do this. If you want to get this cool answer that I'm going to give you, uh, let me show you how these things go together. And then I'll give you these four clues and you can add them up and you'll see what the answer is. Huh? You did it. You know, so he does this in a really kind of responsible way that allows you to maintain the, the journey right? The kind of that stoic thought that the, the journey is the destination or the, the journey is the way the mountain is the way. 
I would definitely agree with that because, um, I mean, uh, you know, kind of like that fool tarot card going back again, you know, you start at the bottom of the tree of life and as you work your way all the way up to the top, you just find yourself at the bottom again to rewalk that path because every time you take that journey, you discover something new and it changes an aspect of you. And similar to masonry in that uh, way, right? You know, as long as you are staying engaged with the philosophical tenets, every time you reembark on that journey, you learn something new about yourself. Yep. That's, that's right. You know, when you think about the tree of life, I mean, that's, that's another kind of thing that is interesting is you've just compared two archetypes, the fool and the tree of life, which are seemingly unrelated, but you know, in Boda and other systems, they are in fact, you know, laid upon each other. And, um, not that they were that way originally, right? Like right. they fully agree that these are similarities, but showing you the way that the archetypes are related. And, and in that, you almost look like the fool as, yeah, that's my starting point, but it's also Ain Sof. It's like everything and nothing. Uh, it's the complete experience. It's the complete package without, um, without motive, yeah. without knowledge of what is to be or what has been. You're literally like, it's the in-breath. Like, I'm not thinking about anything else. Just get in the air. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, and the thing that, you know, I don't know, uh, that, that um, Ainsoff, you know, really, the, the one thing that really resonated with me about Ainsoff in particular is I want to say it was Pappas um, in his uh, Kabbalah book that really, um, that really resonated with me as he talks about how, you know, how in the beginning there was nothing, right? But because there hadn't been anything else before, you know, that nothingness is unlimited potential, right? There is yeah. no purpose. It's, it's, it's that space before, you know, purpose and, you know, things having meaning even existed. So there's just blatant, unlimited potential. And, you know, I think that that is inevitably, you know, the secret, right? That is inevitably, you know, the word that's being sought is, you know, to find your potential to find you know where you to find that that um, aha moment that kind of makes you feel content with your place in this crazy chaotic universe that you know at times seems you know cruel and uncaring but you know beneath the veneer the further you dig into it the more um, you know harmony and balance you find yeah. Um, I mean, what you said there is completely amazing, actually, um, because w when you say potential, limitless, I mean, the word limitless itself implies a, a concept that is, in fact, limited. But like, if you could imagine it... Um, David Bohm called it the implicate order. Others called it uh, limitless potential. Others called it, um, you know, quantum state or whatever. Like the idea is that all potentials exist all the time. And depending on the observer, uh, basically it filters down into a yes or a no or binary coding. And then you decide what you've seen. And if enough subjective opinions agree on that, it becomes the objective truth. I mean, it, this is 
emergent theory says that there has to be an observer for anything to have existed. Does this, does a tree fall in the forest if nobody sees it fall? The answer, I mean, in physics, probably like, no, it doesn't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the idea is that also the big bang, right? If the big bang or something like it happened, well, who, who watched that happen? It has to have had a, a, a witness, a viewer, uh, so this, this is that, that, that is really crazy. Yeah. The, the idea of the Ainsoff and the limitless potential is, uh, they both meet in physics for sure. Yeah. I like to think that, um, that the big bang in itself was the birth of consciousness. Like, like I like to think of the big bang in philosophical terms as, you know, God realizing his own consciousness for the first time. And then, um, from that, you know, choosing to sacrifice that, to sacrifice that cognition to, to birth this material universe, because, you know, I mean, if you know your God and you're conscious, then you're only going to be limited by your own consciousness, right? So, I mean, going back to that kind of savior archetype, I like to think the Big Bang as, you know, God sacrificing, you know, his unlimited potential to manifest what needs to be manifested, yeah, that that is a that's a great uh, kind of summation of that because, uh, in fact, as a I can't remember the guy who writes Dilbert. He wrote a book called God's Debris, uh, G O D apostrophe S Debris, and it's kind of a thought experiment, right? That that God basically uh, destroys himself to know what it's like not to exist, and um, in so far as the story is, you know, like there is only one consciousness we're all sharing it and uh you know upon death or whatever or the transition whatever you want to believe you know your ascension back to the pleroma whatever you you become you know part of the great consciousness again the one uh, as like a gnostic christianity concept um but yeah, yeah. It, it is a it is pretty interesting yeah, there's something very poetic about that, though. You know, the idea of of you, you know, returning right to the to the one consciousness, right to the unlimited, the ability that you will have to sacrifice, right, everything that makes you finite, your consciousness, your identity, your memories, your experiences, having to sacrifice all that to be reintegrated into the source. It's almost as if you yourself are reliving that sacrifice God made, you know, at the birth of the Big Bang in order to be, you know, uh, to be, uh, you know, taken back into that consciousness. And, you know, it's... I, I think that's the fear, though, is that so many of us, we want to hold on to these finite things. We want to hold on to these tangible things. To your individuality. You are who you are. Nobody's like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And once again, just to bring it back, that's the ego fucking with you. Yeah, it is. And, it, and the thing that's really, uh, it's been likened in a lot of schools is, you know, imagine a flower and the flower has a consciousness and the flower is looking over across the yard and it sees a beautiful tree. It says, man, I love that tree. That tree looks so cool. But the root system is the same. They don't realize they're connected, right? It's the illusion of separation, the illusion of a different consciousness. Uh, there's, a, there's a great 
few papers out there. Um, anybody can Google them. Here's what I want you all to do. You want to Google uh, psychology and, the, the, and then the words thermodynamics. Okay. And then uh, you might even want to throw in the words uh, fifth fundamental force. Uh, Einstein has this idea in the general theory of relativity of the uh, four fundamental forces, right? So this is gravitational, uh, uh, electromagnetic, strong and weak interaction. So psychologists, psychologists, not physicists, but psychologists are now suggesting that consciousness itself is the fifth fundamental force. So now think about this kind of flat plane where planets sit on it, right? And then you see the dip, right? Because they're heavy. This is, the this is the depiction of a gravitational force. Now imagine that same thing above, right? And it's like a matrix. And uh, now imagine a field of brains or what would account for a brain. And now imagine a wire coming from that field down into each brain, right? It's all coming from the same thing, but it's feeding all these individual brains. And the brains then subjectively see something, collectively agree on an objective site or a viewpoint, and then it feeds back up into the uh, consciousness. And then uh, it, it then has the ability to uh, inform the limitless potential, the, uh, the implicate order to then manifest what it thinks it sees right? And so this is like this weird endless feedback loop of creation. And then maybe when you're done here in this physical plane, wow, man, you go flying back up into the, you know, the realm or whatever you reintegrate. And this is the transition where, you know, maybe you finally had this realization if you didn't have it on earth already that, you know, you're just part of something much, much bigger. Yeah, and actually that is, um, you know, it's it's funny that you say that because, you know, studying different um, Gnostic groups, right, one of the major goals that they have in their um, meditations is what they call the uh, beautific vision of Christ, where you are able to see through the eyes of countless strangers all at once, being able to see, you know, all the suffering, all the love, everything that exists through all these individual perceptions and realizing the universal truth from that. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you know, with any like, you know, something like that, um, you know, it's going to be brief, right? It's just going to be one spiritual experience that you have kind of like, uh, I, 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 it's not, um, comparable, but kind of like the Kundalini, right? First being released in you, right? You have this like sense of like, connection to you know the universe to all consciousness and but there's something there's something very humbling about you know seeing through the eyes of all living things for a brief second and holding on to that and knowing that you are the center of the universe you are a divine spark and you are so special and unique but knowing that it doesn't matter any either way, because everybody is that exact same divine spark. Yeah. I mean, what's beautiful and terrifying, right? Because then it's all of a sudden, like uh, this kind of idea of everybody being on the level, everybody dies as the same friggin' skeleton, you know, uh, your rags to riches mean nothing. 
your existence on the planet is arguably meaningless, uh, but is it? You know, it, it absolutely has meaning, especially if you subscribe to the idea that God needs the experience. What is your goal? Your goal is to experience all that you can experience to uh, complete the, uh, the consciousness, right? Like there are an infinite number of things that need to be experienced. And through a multitude of uh, what you would call simulated consciousness, maybe, I don't know. But, but the idea that, yeah, like you would have this, this fantastic vision it's like the tower card, like, bam, the tower, you know, the lightning strikes and, and the man and the woman are blown off the tower and a strike of revelation. But like, you don't know if they live or die, you know, like mm -hmm. that's kind of the open-ended question in the strike of revelation. Like, are, what are you going to do with the knowledge once you have it? Are you going to use it to uh, understand that, you know, all God's creatures are created equal? Um, are you going to, you know, have a meltdown? Like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's like the Star Trek question, it, you know, like people, people think all the time, how can a world exist where there's no money? Uh, you know, in Star Trek, I mean, of course, later on, they, they introduce Latinum, right, from the Ferengi. But, uh, you know, in a world that has no money, what is your motivation to do? And that is interesting like you can say well the motivation lies in the work and they say well that's a well and good but you know people are you know power hungry individuals well that negates the idea of the progression the moral progression the moral progressive science uh of the 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 human brain and where it goes in the future we can't always say that we're going to be uh motivated by by money and capital and uh, material wealth and uh, prowess and at some point that's not going to matter anymore i mean i don't wake up every morning and and run outside and kill the first goose i find so they can run it back home to my family before my neighbor gary does right mm -hmm. that's what would have motivated me when i if i had been a neanderthal or something maybe or maybe not Neanderthals, right? They, they were supposedly vegetarians or something. I'm not sure, but, but like you get the idea, right? Right. Our, our motivations change over, over time as, as our brains adapt and develop to the situations and the, uh, the things that are adversities in our life. Like what's our major adversity today? Like healthcare and I don't know, not, not living on the street. Yeah, is it whatever argument you started on Facebook? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, That's right. I, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's humbling, you know, to kind of think about it in that way, you know, to kind of um, look at, you know, the struggles of the past and how insignificant a lot of our, you know, and I mean, I don't want to say first world problems, right? But a lot of how insignificant our first world problems are, um, you know, when when looking at the uh, struggles of the past, we're looking at the struggles of our ancestors. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's not to, uh, you know, that's not to downplay any of the struggles that we have currently, right? Because similar to, uh, you know, the struggles of the past, our struggles now are going to dictate the progression of humanity and how we evolve. And, you know, it's, it's hoping that you can get to that utopian state and uh you know the best thing that you know we as individuals can do is to help propagate that hope and to help inspire others to take up that action yeah i mean that's all we can we can hope for and i think 
part of the part of the mission of Freemasonry today, um, you know, going back to that for a moment is is that there's hope that we can affect that kind of an outcome. I think there's enough brothers today uh, who understand that there are troubles and things that we can, in fact, assist in making better. And even if Freemasonry is like the place we all meet, and even if we don't talk about it there, maybe we meet there, understand and learn the same kinds of teachings, but then meet out in the real world. And I don't know, maybe, maybe Jim goes into politics, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you are a part of a school board and maybe you decide, you know, maybe, maybe you're exacting your talents or executing your talents in a way uh, that, and your views and, upholding kind of these ideals to affect, uh, you know, future generations in that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that is a uh, good ending point because, um, you know, if it's one thing Freemasonry has always done, it's inspire action to try and make the next generation better. And, um, you know, that's a rich tradition that, um, you know, that we, that we can't allow, to be lost because, you know, some guys don't feel comfortable talking about politics or talking about human rights or talking about, you know, what is actually good for society. Yeah, that is uh, um, precisely where I think you could you could take that. Um, throughout time, we have been there and we've we've lived through a number of conflicts and wars and uprisings. We, you know, Freemasonry survived and was, um, I mean, you can say it, it didn't have an opinion officially, but I guarantee you the tenets that Freemasonry continually believes in offers and preaches about, uh, can directly relate to things like social, I mean, justice itself, a good friend and brother, I think of both of ours, is uh, Brother Scott Duball. Brother Scott has been one of the only people who's really explored contextual meanings of the words um, in a way that wasn't for his own personal uh, use. I mean, of course, he benefited from this, but when he presents on the topic of, say, justice, when we look at what justice meant, you know, when that ritual is written, and it basically means social justice— um, so we see where Freemasonry has made a stance on progressive moral science. Uh, can I say that Masons had an opinion during the civil rights or, you know, era of America? I don't know that it was ever discussed in a lodge, but I guarantee you Masons marched. You know what I mean? They marched for social justice. We, we did uh, St. Andrew's Lodge's minutes confirm we were very much involved with the planning of the Boston Tea Party. Um, you know, the, the, we, we've just been there. We've, we've taken action and statements, and maybe not as a lodge, but Masons have heard the call. We all seem to kind of gravitate toward Freemasonry. We hear a call, we learn, we believe in the teachings. Uh, we do a number of things within the fraternity to better the fraternity, to increase... Uh, just the knowledge and experience of others around us. 
and try to make the world a better place. I, mean, I always hear it said masonry, you know, is about making yourself better to better your family, your community and your uh, the greater the greater world, right? To leave the place a better place than you came into it. And so even if we're not discussing politics in a lodge, uh, getting involved in decisions that affect humanity uh, is something we have always done. And I believe is a very important thing, but also it's a very dangerous thing because we have the ability to accidentally be on the wrong side of history at some point. You know, luckily at this point, I think we'll find few existence, a uh, few times where Freemasonry has been on the wrong side of history. Um, you know, uh, in in an I guess in an in an obtuse kind of way, uh, of course, acutely. Yeah, I mean, Freemasonry for years has been, has had issues with recognition of Prince Hall brothers and that kind of thing, but uh, you know, objectively, I think we've been on the good side of history for most most of our existence. And I think that's not going to stop. Granted, the kind of men who are joining today and the, the reasons they're joining the craft are apparent. You know, it's philosophical, it's spiritual, it's, uh, you know, to fellowship and to gain insights from brothers not unlike themselves. And, and, and when I say not unlike themselves, I don't mean echo chamber. You know, I mean like other guys who are in search, in search of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would 100% agree with you on that because, you know, recognizing that we're all searching for that is the first step to, um, you know, to joining together to take action. But I want to thank you, uh, RJ, for coming on the show. Now, uh, folks, if you liked what we have been talking about for the last uh, two hours or so, then you should definitely tune in to his podcast, Whence Came You, the Masonic Podcast. Now, RJ, uh, what days does that uh, air, and how often do you air episodes? Sure. Episodes are weekly, 9.30 Sunday nights. They are pre-recorded, uh, edited programs, so um, you won't find me... Uh, is, you know, it's pretty scripted. So I, I want to let you all know that it's a produced program. So it's like a kind of documentary every week. Um, and yeah, the website is wcypodcast.com. And you can find us pretty much wherever podcasts are uh, listened to. So Stitcher or um, Spotify, whatever. Awesome. Then, yeah, folks, if you like what we've been talking about so far, and if you're interested in just uh, the history and teachings of Freemasonry in general, he has a backlog catalog of so many different episodes. You can learn so much by listening to him. He's been at it for a number of years now. And then uh, one last plug for your book. Where can uh, folks find the Mason's Word or the Master's Word? Yeah. Yeah, no, no problem. Uh, Master's Word can be uh, uh, picked up at a number of places, so you can get it at uh, any retailer if you ask for it. Um, but you can also get it uh, through my website. It'll be autographed if you buy it through there, um, and then available to you pretty quick if you go through Amazon and is also on Kindle. Uh, and we have a, a couple of books out that uh, you might find interesting. 
Awesome. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, RJ. Folks, definitely check out the podcast and, uh, you know, might as well order a copy of the book if you're interested in Masonic teachings, because, uh, you know, as someone who has um, read a lot of Plumer, um, if you want to understand, you know, the esoteric truths that have kind of been passed down um, through the years, that is one of the most straightforward sources to find. All right. I want to thank you again one more time because we are... Thank you.